This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. As if we don't have enough supply chain problems because of the pandemic. The trucking industry is warning that thousands of Canadian truckers won't be vaccinated against COVID-19 by a deadline imposed by governments on both sides of the border. That's January 15th, by the way. And according to reports from trucking companies, the estimate is that up to 20% of the 120,000 Canadian truckers who regularly cross into the U.S. might not be vaccinated by the time that deadline hits. And if that happens, it would affect everything from fruit and vegetable imports to auto parts manufacturing. The question is, will we see what has happened in other areas where a looming deadline induced people to get their shots very close to the deadline? Uh, What do you think? The numbers to call, 416 3600740 3600740 toll free 18667444740 and of course we'd like to hear from you if you are a trucker on the road because we get those calls quite often and right now i am joined by Stephen Laskowski who is the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance and Dr. Jim Bookbinder a professor in the Department of Management Sciences and the director of the Waterloo Management of Integrated Manufacturing Systems Research Group at the University of Waterloo. Thank you so much for being with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, Libby. Okay. Well, Stephen Laskowski, let us begin with you. So uh, do you have any idea why it seems that uh, truckers, more truckers are unvaccinated than uh, in the rest of the population? Well, actually, Libby, I wouldn't characterize it that way. I think uh, we're reflective of society. You know, there are fleets of that have 100% of their drivers vaccinated. And as you mentioned uh, on the intro, 85 to 90%. And some of those that are that are lower, it's reflective of the region they operate, uh, where they draw from. Quite frankly, it's a reflection of our society uh, with regards to vaccination rates. Yeah, but 20% so, is higher than uh, we have almost 90% of people vaccinated here. So 20 percent if if that estimate is correct is higher you know if if we get down to 80 percent absolutely it will be slightly higher but i would think it's no it's no higher than other estimates in other areas of the population libby Mm, well um as we said it is a little higher so um um you know this this is a mandate that's coming from both governments including the united states so uh, we actually don't have the power to change it uh what effect do you think it will have stephen so you know this really isn't a trucking issue uh it's a societal and a supply chain issue uh 70% of the canada us trade moves by truck and that's per- uh, in, in perspective, it's about $650 billion a year. And as you mentioned, it covers all aspects of, of society and, and what we consume and what we purchase uh, and what we produce here in, in from a manufacturing perspective. So the ramifications will be felt throughout the supply chain. And what we're asking governments on both sides of the border is to not just work with the trucking industry on both sides of the border, but also our customers understand the implications. We already know that our supply chain is fragile. Your listeners have already seen empty store shelves and have seen have seen that when they go to order uh, an appliance, that it's taking months as opposed to weeks to get that. And part of that, not all of it, but part of it is the, related to the driver shortage. So what we're saying is let's work together, uh, both all people in the supply chain, to find a date where there's less disruption. Um, just be, before we move on to our next guest, do you, uh, trucking is a, is a very lucrative profession. Do you really think that there will be thousands of truckers who are willing to give up their livelihood rather than get a shot? The answer is yes. 
they've told our ownership groups this. So uh, we are working on vaccine hesitancy. Our our management teams are working with drivers. Uh, and again, it's it's not a driver issue; it's a societal issue. I'm sure you've had many guests on this show explain their reasons for not wanting to be vaccinated or vaccine hesitancy, uh, depending upon their perspective. And again, this is no different than the trucking industry; we're a reflection of society. Hmm. Well, I, I I would take an issue of that, but uh, uh, that's your opinion. Let's move on to Dr. Jim Bookbinder. Uh, so, uh, what's your view of what's happening in the supply chain right now. I mean, we are headed into the holiday season. We've been warned that, uh, you know, you might not get the gifts you want to buy. And uh, then, you know, winter. So a lot of our fresh fresh food is coming from the United States. Yes, I, I think um, uh, you've uh, said it very well. And, and uh, Stephen uh, expressed uh, some of the issues very well indeed. Uh, I, I would just uh, say that that uh, there aren't many options available to to uh, companies to counteract this. If we're dealing with items that are non-perishable, then I would think um, an increase in the level of inventory, uh, if a store can build this up uh, in anticipation of the winter uh, storms and so on, then then um, uh, the retailers could could guard against uh, shortages of that type. But there's no doubt that that the the items that that, that are fresh and, and, and need to be fresh or we won't buy them, uh, they're, they're, they're going to be a little more uh, complicated and, and we'll, we'll be in short supply and, and, and at a higher price. Uh, Stephen, when, when a trucker hauls uh, you know, some fruits and vegetables, are they the ones that unload it? Uh, I'm wondering, is there any kind of option where you know, basically they stay in their truck? So, so Libby, you know, that really depends upon the customer and uh, their, their agreement. But to, to your point, and I'll just build upon it, is that during the COVID crisis prior uh, to the introduction of vaccines, which we all support uh, as one of the main ways out of, of this COVID crisis, is the fact that the supply chain adjusted. So whether it was paperless delivery or finding other ways to create less contact between uh, individuals outside of the companies. This wasn't an issue isolated on the driver. I don't want to make that case. But how are there ways that we could change delivery within the supply chain to have less contact between people from different companies? So uh, over the last two years, that has been introduced uh, and is continuing to be looked at. So uh, how does it happen? Is, is it that, that a, that a driver stays in his truck and, and uh, the place where it, the goods are being delivered, they do the unloading? Is that, is that, has that been a solution? And any driver that's listening to this, Libby, will say their, their favorite thing to do is to pull up to the back of a delivery or to be loaded and to not have to touch the freight. In some cases, that's not the case. So it, it, it truly does vary depending upon the needs of the customer. In essence, the trucking industry is a service industry. So if it can provide more service or that service isn't required, that will be up, up to the individual that's purchasing the service of that trucking company. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of replacement drivers how how long does it take to train a driver truck driver so th- that is that is one of the cruxes of the issue here libby is that we have currently in this country 20,000 vacancies in the truck driving position so that means that if you translate that into plain english what we really have is 20,000 that could be on the road operating not operating and moving freight because we don't have the drivers. And so that is part of the challenge here, Libby, of, of this mandate. We don't have backup drivers. And quite frankly, it will take a long time to replace them because safety has to come first. You have to find a, a driver, and then they have to be trained properly to operate a commercial vehicle on the road. Safety's first. Yeah, so how long does that training usually take? So uh, there is mandatory entry-level training uh, that's over about 103 hours in each province, but that just gets you the license. Then you will have an onboarding process, and onboarding processes in each company will vary, but they may start on the dock. 
they may start out with local loads uh, and then finally go out to regional and long haul. So it can take months uh, and if not a year before the the trucking company will allow them to go on long hauls. It, it, it really, truly varies. Dr. Bookbinder, I'd like to talk a bit about auto parts and autos. We've been hearing about an auto shortage. Uh, people are being warned you can't, you won't get the car exactly as you want it. And the price of used cars is, is apparently going up. Uh, so, so how would, uh, you know, if there is a further delay in auto parts, what, what kinds of cars would be effective? What's your view of that? I've heard that the uh, dealers, the, sorry, the manufacturers, uh, are, are producing more of the cars that have the highest profit margin. So, so the car that, that the, um, let's say, the average person might like to buy, that's still quite a good vehicle, nice shiny new car, but may not be available because more um, money and, and, and labor are being invested in the production of the higher margin uh, vehicles, the high-end SUVs, for example. And, and um, for any of the uh, production of the uh, cars, the shortage of uh, computer chips is a big issue. Uh, so it's high-end SUVs. I mean, even when you look at uh, sort of, I guess, entry-level luxury cars, uh, you know, if you listen to the dealers, they say the, the, their margin on it is pretty slim. Well, that has to do with their relationship with the manufacturer. But, but the manufacturer is probably the one that's deciding the inventory that's available at the dealerships now. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, what about uh, uh, North American cars versus European cars that, I guess, come on a boat? Oh, that's an interesting point. The, the North American cars, you would think, would be available to a greater degree. The, the European auto manufacturers must have their own difficulties, again, with the worldwide uh, shortage of chips. So, so perhaps there is a greater availability of the, the uh, North American cars, the, uh, what we would have called uh, an American car in the past. Uh, Stephen, do you have uh, any insight in that? You know, the North American parts, uh, truckers who are hauling cars and auto parts versus food? So, uh, you, as, as I said uh, earlier in the conversation, Libby, this is spread across the supply chain. So, uh, you know, to to ascertain which sector will be impacted the most, well, hopefully we don't find this out. Uh, but when, if and when this mandate goes on into January, we will find out very quickly. But particularly in those two sectors, uh, as the doctor mentioned, that. The issue of fresh food, well, that's what we'll refer to as just-in-time, just as auto parts are. And so the the scare issue with regards to auto is plants won't be functioning properly. Because if we don't have enough drivers to move the parts back and forth over the border that happens on a regular basis, then we're going to run into manufacturing problems. So, uh, again, that's an issue we need to have some consideration. We need to examine it. We need to understand what the impacts are. So when we put an an implementation date in place, we understand what the consequences are. So we need to understand those consequences. Uh, Have you uh, been talking to government, or have they been ignoring you? What's that situation? No, no, I think the the government of Canada has been very receptive uh, to listening to us and understanding this this issue. They are they are asking us for more and more data for to understand this, and we will continue to work with them on this issue. What about the American government? We are working with our American colleagues, our equivalencies, the American Trucking Association, and we're working through the American Trucking Association to deal with Washington on this. And do the numbers there, are they about the same on both sides of the border? Well, I think, uh, you know, although you weren't, uh, you weren't a fan of my, my first response on this, Livy, but I'll give it again, uh, that the issue here in the United States is we all know that they have a greater sense of vaccine hesitancy in the United they States. Do. And so their driver pool is reflective of that. So you're saying that the numbers of American truckers would be even higher? Correct. That I'll agree to- with. <laughs> I'm sorry, Libby. In, in, in total, there are 40,000 Americans who, who 
who carry north-south trade. We would expect about 40% of those to be uh, out of the system if the vaccine mandate went into place in January. 40,000, I guess that's less than uh, we have 120,000 here. Correct. There's 160 in total, 40,000 American drivers, 120,000 Canadian drivers. Okay, let's take a call from Murray and Malton. Hello, Murray. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Fine. How are you? Good, good. Uh, listen, it was brought up earlier this year, and I can't remember. I told Steve it might have been when you, uh, all the factories, all the factory workers had to get vaccinated. But there's a truck driver on, and he says that he's a long hauler, and a lot of times he's back in Canada in the middle of the night, and he leaves early in the morning, and he didn't have an opportunity in that schedule to get a vaccine. So if they were to set it up at the border crossings, then those people that have that issue would be looked after. Well, uh, I don't know. I, I, I would say that uh, at this point in the vaccine rollout, uh, anybody who wants a vaccine has probably had one because they're not very hard to come by, whatever your hours are. Well, I don't know. I don't, don't remember any, any uh, clinic being open at midnight. Uh, some of them actually are. Well, were they? Okay, then disregard this whole thing. I didn't realize there were some at midnight. Okay, thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I don't know, Stephen. Do you do you agree with me on that? That anybody who would have wanted one uh, probably has got one. So, Libby, you're probably not going to have me on my sh- on your show again because I'm not going to agree with you. Completely. You don't have to agree with me. That's why I'm asking you. Uh, so. Uh, To Murray's point, truck drivers have very, very different hours of work, uh, especially the long haul, as Murray mentioned, than than many of the people listening on on this phone call. We've worked with the government on different approaches uh, with regards to vaccination distribution amongst the the trucking industry. And Murray brings up a good point about uh, making it more available at border points or, or where drivers can have easier access. To it, and so uh, that is something that uh, we'd like to explore with the government of Canada: is uh, expanding vaccines at the border, and uh, and and going from there. I think that access. To, I, I can't, uh, Libby. You are correct that you know vaccines are the governments and the provincial government and municipal governments who have worked with us, by the way, in uh, in opening up clinics specifically for truck drivers, both uh, the region of Peel, the province of Ontario work with us. There's been a lot of work towards focusing on truck drivers, and we just need to continue with that. It's, uh, this, is, this is a process, and we need to continue on that process. Uh, Dr. Bookbinder, uh, do you see a timeline for the easing of the supply chain, or do you have any, uh, anything that will make us maybe feel a little better about all this? Well, well I did have a thought about the, the mandatory vaccination. Uh, even if we we have the um, the vaccinated drivers uh, going in either direction. They would need to show uh, proof of that at the border, and and I have heard that that there's an issue as to what types of uh, proof would be acceptable. Now, if we had a universal uh, international type of uh, vaccination uh, proof, that would that would help. Uh, but if if we're going to get slowed down in trying to uh, show that a driver is uh, vaccinated, it would it would perhaps amount to the same type of delay as as bad weather. Either way, it's going to increase the the length of time before uh, the customer receives the the uh, replenishment of the goods, and 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 that can't be helpful for anybody. I don't know. Is that an issue, Stephen? Uh, it's actually bang on, and we have been working with the government on, on proof of vaccination, and it looks like they're going to be, uh, on the Canadian side, uh, we have not heard from the Americans on this, that uh, the Arrive Can app will, will serve as the, the platform to upload your uh, vaccine certificate. And uh, the Canadian Trucking Alliance and the Ontario Trucking Association is actually uh, working on an instructional video for drivers, uh, educating them on this and how to upload uh, their vaccine certificates onto uh, ArriveCam if and when this mandate comes into place. <laughs> and I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm just back uh, from New York 
And uh, so, first of all, they're they're very good about checking uh, vaccine passports. And there were people all over the world, and and you know everybody got checked. But in terms of arrive can, you know, we had a, a an issue with our internet. And if you have your vaccine passport on your phone, but not in the arrive can app, uh, the border guards won't accept that. So uh, I'm just saying, yeah, that's a good plan to get to get no. instructions and and all of that because uh, they don't like it unless it's in that app. And, and the doctor brings up a very, very valid point, and one that we're bringing up that the administ the the mandate itself is a challenge, but also the administration of the challenge because we do not need further border delays in people fumbling trying to show their vac- vaccination status. Um, if I could yeah. make one more uh, comment about that, uh, just as a, a, a trucker will will electronically uh, convey in advance the the um, type of load and the and the goods and and any permits that were necessary to cross the border uh, could we not think of, of of doing that electronically in advance too like an advance advanced shipping notice this would be an advanced vaccine notice that the driver would convey to the border authorities uh, you know an hour or two uh, in advance of uh, reaching the border that's a good idea can't you do the arrive can in advance I don't know. Um. You, 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 you can. And uh, the doctor should take my job because that's also a valid point, <laughs> what he's bringing up of a, a electronic clearance for, for, the, for your listeners' uh, uh, information. All loads uh, that go into Canada the United States must be sent electronically. So all the information by the, by the border guards, both in Canada and the United States, is received well in advance so they know exactly what's on that truck, who the driver is. And one of the options... To, to be considered moving forward beyond arrive can was could not the vaccination status of the driver be added in there because there already is information about the driver yeah, in that, that seems... advance notification. Again, it makes it more seamless uh, moving moving through the border. It it uh, that does make make seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, and Stephen, uh, do you anticipate uh, a lot a lot more people wanting to be drivers? We've seen people leaving service industries that have been hit hard. And as I said, you know, drivers can make good money. You know, it, it is a. Absolutely. There's a wonderful opportunity in our industry uh, beyond drivers as well. We're actually uh, launching Monday a national uh, social media campaign for three years, attracting people to our industry, uh, and a large focus of that will be on drivers. You know, the trucking industry offers a lot of opportunity. It's going to be here for a long time. Uh, You can make a very good living, and you can pursue multiple careers within the trucking industry and ultimately have your own company. Many of the big, medium, and small companies are led by individuals that started off working at the dock or as a driver. And and what are some of the other jobs uh, that you can do in the industry? Well, you name it, Libby, uh, from an accountant to a load planner to a dock worker uh, to management to logistics, um, engineering at times, depending on the size of the fleet, IT. We're very high-tech industry. You know, uh, some people just look at the trucks. It's a very, very high-tech industry. So IT people are very much in demand in our sector. It's boundless what we do. We, we have sales teams. Uh, you know, we're, we're a high-end service uh, actually, there's some companies that are into manufacturing because it's added value service. Um, you know, we will continue to promote our industry and need to continue to promote our industry uh, with regards to the people in, in Canada that regardless of your interest, there's probably a place for you in the trucking industry. Uh, Dr. Bookbinder, presumably that is what you teach. <laughs> well, my, my students probably... Uh, would uh, have have different aspirations than to be a truck driver. I've I've heard actually that that many of the uh, drivers are in their second or third career, which of course is is quite um, uh, timely uh, given the pandemic and and how some uh, um, uh, earlier careers would have been uh, interrupted. Uh, but but what I'm teaching, yeah, is the the impact of assuming you had you you, you had the drivers and you had the goods produced, then how do you get them efficiently? Uh, from uh, uh, one uh, end of the supply chain to the other. Yeah, logistics. I mean, uh, that's pretty complicated. 
it is, but uh, that's uh, that. That hopefully is why we have a demand for people to do research in that subject at the universities. Okay, so uh, to wrap things up, Stephen Laskowski, um, how do you expect this whole issue to uh, resolve itself? I think, uh, like all issues that we've had, uh, Libby, during this COVID crisis. Uh, We'll continue to work with the federal government in a collegial manner. Uh, we'll work with the with Washington and work through this process. What's good for Canadians and what's good for the economy, and uh, with a fact based approach, uh, I think that we'll come to a resolution that will be, as I said, good for Canadians and good for the supply chain. And Dr. Bookbinder, what can we expect to find when we are shopping for whatever? Well, there there may be uh, a shortage of, of the particular item that one is looking for. I mean, we've been talking about trucking here, and, and very appropriately, but but um, there's a, a real bottleneck in the uh, arrival of goods from Asia, where, where many of the uh, Christmas gifts might originate, and the the um, the port uh, difficulties and the and the rail lines, well, in some cases being washed away there in British Columbia. So 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 there's probably going to be higher prices and a little less of a uh, of a um, uh, selection when one is uh, doing the holiday shopping. But 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 hopefully it's all going to work out, and and a year from now it's going to be much much better. We. We hope. Okay, that is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Jim Bookbinder and Stephen Laskowski. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the show, Libby. Okay, bye bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the latest findings on COVID and breakthrough infections and what that means for the booster rollout. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There is new data from Public Health Ontario on breakthrough infections in the province. And what we're learning is that the majority of residents who require hospital care for COVID-19 despite being fully vaccinated are over the age of 60 with the highest proportion in their 80s. And the same report reveals that only nine fully vaccinated Ontarians under the age of 60 have been admitted to the ICU. And there's more on the data. There have been as many as uh, 17,500 breakthrough cases of COVID-19, and that's out of more than 11 million residents who got full vaccination. So when it comes to being hospitalized, unvaccinated people made up 90% uh, of hospitalizations and more than 90% of the deaths, while breakthrough cases only accounted for 2.7% of hospitalizations and 3.3% of deaths. So uh, that leaves me with questions about the booster rollout. What are your questions? The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University and member of Ontario's Science Advisory Table, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, an epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. Hi, doctors. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. So, hello. hello. So, so this data sort of mirrors what we saw in terms of the original infections of COVID. That the people hardest hit are over sixty, and uh, those most of those really hard hit are over eighty. Um, so, is there any surprise here, Dr. Evans? Um, no, not really. And I think what I would underscore for people looking at these numbers is this is a, a tremendous effect of vaccination because without vaccination, those numbers would not look anywhere near as they do, even for uh, those that are 
uh, older individuals um, in in Ontario um, if they weren't vaccinated. This is uh, showing you that vaccination um, really does work. It keeps people out of hospital. Uh, and, you know, if you look at 17,000 breakthroughs amongst 11 million, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist. It never, by the way, takes a rocket scientist because they know nothing about uh, <laughs> maybe stats and medicine to sort of show you that that's, a, that's really an incredible effect. And we, we know a lot about what, why people end up in hospital who are older, uh, who may also coincidentally have uh, COVID-19, uh, and why it is that, uh, that they still um, ultimately can succumb as an outcome. Dr. Ja, what's your view of this? I think what Dr. Evans says is exactly right, that uh, we have an amazingly effective vaccine or a set of vaccines. They work much better and they're much stronger against severe disease, that's hospitalization uh, or death, than against infection. But even, even against infection, they're highly effective. They... Uh, for people who are getting these so-called breakthrough infections, which I think is a terrible name, by the way, but uh, they uh, they will have less severe disease. More, they're less likely to transmit than if they were uninfected or if they were unvaccinated. So we have to come back saying COVID remains primarily a disease of the unvaccinated. Still in Ontario today, there are uh, roughly two hundred thousand by last count of. Ontarians above age 50 or older that still have not got a vaccine. Now, this is the population that is getting hospitalized and sick. Moreover, yeah, and it's it's so disheartening. I mean, yeah. you should read some of my emails from these people. Uh, I mean, you know, just uh, total, uh, you know, a total ignoring of the actual facts. Yeah. Um, so it it is disheartening. But on the other hand, we're doing well. But th- this leaves me with a question about the rollout of the boosters. So older people people who got AstraZeneca or J&J are eligible for booster shots at 158 days, 68 days, which is about five and a half months. Uh So I am now uh, questioning that interval, given that we're seeing infections rise, the holidays are coming, people are going to be socializing. Should that interval be trimmed? I don't think so, because we still have the issue that most of the cases that are newly occurring are still in the unvaccinated. Now, it's as true when you just large lots of numbers that you have a huge number of vaccinated people and a smaller number of unvaccinated. Just even with a much lower rate, you're going to get substantial numbers in absolute terms in the vaccinated and we have to remember what uh, what's driving transmission here, which is the key. So people that are um, vaccinated but are mixing with unvaccinated are the ones likely uh, picking up these uh, so-called breakthrough infections. And that's very much the dynamic. So we have to keep a focus on reaching the unvaccinated. I fear, quite frankly, that the emphasis on boosters uh, is somewhat muddling the message that if you haven't got at least a single dose, go and get one. That's the most important decision that uh, people need to make uh, because some of them think, well, look, the stuff doesn't work. You need three, uh, three doses before it's actually effective. I'm not going to bother. Rather than saying a single dose, ideally two dose, might well save your life uh, and it's really and save the lives of someone else in in your family. So we we really have to keep to that core message. Uh, I think boosters are less of a priority, except in some particular populations like the elderly and the immunocompromised, because we know in those they don't mount as good a response to you know, two doses of vaccine as we would like. So that, that makes sense. But the main message needs to be, if you haven't got a vaccine, if you know someone who hasn't got a vaccine, cajole, uh, bribe, whatever you need to do to try to get them to get uh, get their at least their first or se- uh, and second dose. Dr. Evans, what do you think? Because we've seen evidence of waning immunity after six months. And in the circumstance, should we shorten the interval for a booster shot? 
Well, I think Dr. Jaws hit most of the big points, which is just get people vaccinated with at least two doses. That's going to be useful, and that's going to have the greatest impact. So no question about it. Where boosters lie a little bit is, is in exactly what he was mentioning, which is that you know elderly people, especially those who got their vaccine very early, so we're looking at congregate setting people, they oftentimes had a short interval of three to four weeks. The durability of their response diminishes um, about six months out, and that's what the data from Israel has told us. Um, and those people should be a high priority, as are people who have inadequate responses or low immunogenicity response because of underlying conditions or medications they're taking. So the boosters right now really are aimed at those particular individuals. I like to call them third doses, not boosters, because it suggests somehow that two doses aren't helping. Um, And I also agree with breakthrough infections. I think it's a crappy term to use in in general. But that's where the third doses are sitting. But they're not as high a priority as it is to get more people fully vaccinated. But the challenge is that group that's still unvaccinated here in the province, these are the firm, uh, you can't call them vaccine hesitant anymore. These are people who are firmly lined up ideologically or whatever in not getting vaccines. And that's where our challenge lies. So in the meantime, to just have an impact on this very small number of people who are getting infections after two shots is to really aim our third shot strategy at the people who are high risk, elderly people with short intervals, vaccinated very early, and or people who are immunosuppressed from an underlying condition or medications they're on. That's where third doses lie at the moment. Well, that's who's eligible in addition to people who got AstraZeneca and J&J. I've I've seen recommendations that it should be uh, increased to people who are over 50. I mean, you know, it's a small number of breakthroughs, but which is a bad word. Um, I'll use another word if you have a suggestion, or uh, breakthrough infections. um, But, you know, some are too many. And as you point out, those those who aren't vaccinated, in my opinion, don't want to be, won't be. Yeah, well, the comorbidity issue is is certainly a big issue when you get into people who are older. As a physician who cares for people and has for three decades in hospitals, the older you get, even minor problems, a broken hip, uh, another kind of infection, not COVID, gets you into hospital, usually that's going to produce morbidity and mortality. So not all of it is attributable specifically to COVID. You're absolutely right. People who got the viral vector vaccines are should be getting mRNA because we know that the effect on sterilizing immunity, that is prevention of infection, is more profound with the mRNA vaccines than it was with the viral vector vaccine. So they would be included in that too. I'm sorry for not sort of continuing to message that sort of particular issue. So, you know, shorter intervals, I think the only group that would be really looking at shorter intervals would be immunosuppressed individuals, either because of an underlying disease or because of some medication that they're taking that suppresses their immune system and therefore their immune response to vaccine. Those people probably look at somewhat shorter intervals than 168 days. And, and I'm a little confused about whether that is an absolute hard and fast rule or there's discretion there. Uh, do either of you know? Well, we have defined the conditions that are, you know, the ones that we know reduce the immunogenicity of the of the vaccine when they're given. It's not everybody, uh, but it is, a, you know, a fair number of individuals who suffer from either malignancies, some conditions like rheumatological or GI symptoms, where we use drugs that suppress the response of the immune system cells that make antibodies. So they're specifically been targeted early on in the rollout of third doses. Okay, uh, we're starting to run out of time. Uh, Dr. Jai, you sounded very optimistic about getting the unvaccinated vaccinated, but as I said, you probably uh, don't see the kinds of emails that I do or, or hear the stories. In a, a couple of cases, I, I even have uh, people that I know whose elderly parents actually contracted COVID and were lucky enough to recover after bad cases and still would not dream of having a vaccine. Yeah, I think we've, uh, I mean, what happens is uh, the we, we do have progress. It used that number of 200,000 unvaccinated above age uh, 50 in Ontario it used to be 700,000. So it's come down. But the the, the more stubborn population is the one that remains. Uh, And I think we have to point out how well the vaccines are working and saving lives. Uh, And uh, social media and what we hear tends to amplify the people who've said no and will continue to say no. But we need to put the stories out of people who have been vaccinated and 
um, the vaccine has very much worked. And I think I've mentioned on a previous show that vaccine might have well saved my life because uh, I had two doses of Pfizer in February, uh, you know, both doses completed by February. I traveled for COVID work in, in Africa and I got infected in May, but I had absolutely no symptoms, although I had a you know, a serious infection, like measured on the on the values that they test on the PCR. And I attribute that to the vaccine. If it weren't for the vaccine, I'd probably have something like a 2-3% chance of dropping dead. And with the vaccine, that pretty much disappeared. So we, we've got to get stories out that how well these things are saving lives, including in the elderly, including in our parents and our, um, our grandparents, and uh, emphasize those things. I think that's the way, along with mandates and with vaccine passports, that will eventually shrink that number of unvaccinated. Uh, but it's much harder at the end of an epidemic than it is at the beginning to get people vaccinated. Well, yeah, let's hope. Uh, I, I, I suspect that most of the people listening are are on side. Uh, and uh, thanks for sharing that story. I'm going to take a quick call from Ken in London before we wrap up this segment. Hi, Ken. Hi, Libby. You have a question? Yes. Where is the data or the science that we are get here in London, if you're over 65, you can get the booster shot at five months or less, and they're going by co- postal codes. Five months or less, no it's five and a half months. We can get it in less than five months. Five months or less, that 12 days period. Um, I, I hadn't heard of that, uh, but London, what's your question? My question is, where are they getting the data? I thought it was all based on science. Oh, it is based on science, sir. The, the, one of the things that worked really well in Ontario is uh, they identified not just age groups, that were at higher risk, but neighborhoods. And one of the nice things that was done is early on, they said high-risk neighborhoods where you have a lot of cases are the ones where they're going to try to put more mobile clinics and get vaccines out. And I believe as part of the strategy, this continues to be the case based on postal code. If there's a lot of cases in the neighborhood, then the province is trying to prioritize vaccine access. And that makes perfect sense. Okay, let's take one more very quick question from Alan in Kitchener. Hi, Alan. Hello. Uh, yeah, my question is, uh, every day I see the update on the number of cases that uh, uh, those who have contracted uh, COVID, and they say it's 500, and uh, they say of those 500, 300 are, uh, were those who are unvaccinated. Why are there these high numbers, 200 vaccinated people out of 500 that are still getting the virus, even though they're vaccinated? Well, you have to look at the denominators. Basically, you think that if something affects um, 1% of the vaccinated and 10%, let's say hypothetically, of the unvaccinated, just because there's 80% of Ontarians are vaccinated, just by absolute numbers, you're going to get more people showing up um, that are in the vaccinated pool. But just back up saying, how did they get infected? I mean, we know that story. Most vaccinated people that have been infected have got it from contacts with unvaccinated infected people. That's very clear. So okay, if you want and to that is on the engine, then worry about the unvaccinated. And that is very interesting and an interesting thing to keep in mind when we're talking about vaccine mandates. That's all the time we have for this segment. Thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Jha and Dr. Gerald Evans. Thanks. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to take another break. When we come back yesterday, the government unveiled uh, their final set of pandemic relief for hard-hit industries. The restaurant industry says doesn't hit the spot. When we come back, you're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland unveiled the latest and last round of pandemic assistance for the hardest hit industries. But for the restaurant industries, these measures do not hit the spot. What do you think? 
Should we give them more relief? And uh, what exactly is the danger that more and more restaurants and food businesses will go under? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by James Rylett, Vice President, Central Canada for Restaurants Canada, and Court des Hotels, the neighbourhood group of companies which operates for restaurants in Guelph and one in Kitchener. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Okay, let us begin with James. So where does this plan fall short for your members? Well, we uh, our members are still in, in uh, need of support from the government. We were hit hardest. We were hit uh, the longest. Um, and and our, they got in deep in debt, and, uh, and um, they're still continuing to suffer. So we think that the, uh, the uh, program should have continued, and uh, 80% of our members say that with the new program, they no longer get uh, support. So um, it's just a, a difficult time to be cutting them off of any support at all. Mm-hmm. So right now, the threshold in terms of revenue losses is 40% under these measures, right? The proposed uh, uh, threshold is 40%, uh, and previously it was at, at 10%. So it's 40% in what period? Um, compared to pre-pandemic uh, um, revenues. So it would be uh, November 2021 versus November 2019? Yes. Okay, so it's it's current. Uh, Court, uh, you are operating restaurants on the ground. First of all, uh, how to what extent have you recovered? Oh, well, we haven't fully recovered yet, um, to be honest with you. We have, you know, we offer... You know, a good cross section of of um, case studies, I'd say, with our four or five restaurants, because we operate anywhere from a upper, you know, f- you know, fine dining restaurants to casual family restaurant, a pub, and then a uh, grab and go, or we we consider a fast casual restaurant. So, good cross section. Some of my businesses are operating at pre pandemic levels. And I have other ones that are, you know, we're down about 35 to 30 percent. So where would you be at pre-pandemic levels? At pre-pandemic levels? Yep. No, we're, we're, we're down. Um, as a company, we're down about 20 percent. Uh, but some of my businesses are down up to 35 percent. Okay, but I'm saying which, which areas of the restaurant business are doing better than others? Sure. Our, our pub... Is is doing uh, is doing phenomenally well, and and same with our fast casual restaurant. And it seems to be the the, more, the restaurants we have in more suburban markets are are the ones that are struggling the most. It, it, you have less people seem to be going out, and I think it's a lot of the narrative that's happening in the news is that it's still, you know, we're not a safe place to be. And, and so so that's what we're seeing right now is that what's causing the decline. And uh, fine dining, is, is, is it slower to recover? It is. Yeah, I think people are still very cautious on what they're spending. And, um, and like I said, you know, people of you know, various degrees have been dealing uh, with, you know, a bit of a cash crunch throughout the, um, throughout the pandemic, despite what we're seeing is that the consumer's savings might be higher. People still aren't sure where they're going to spend that money or they're very nervous about what, um, what might be on the horizon. And uh, in terms of grab and go, I wonder about that because you know people are back to work, but not at a five day a week level. It's correct, and actually, our our grab and go was doing was doing phenomenally well during the pandemic. Uh, it was doing higher than its uh, pre pandemic sales, and then when other restaurants have now opened back up, we've seen a decline in business there. So we've seen about a twenty percent decline there, which uh, you know we're we're operating around what we were doing pre-pandemic uh but it's interesting we don't have any dining guests we have uh you know 24 seats in that restaurant and nobody's dining in it's all it's all takeout before we were a 50 50 mix and now it's about an 80 20 of uh, takeout 80 percent takeout and 20 percent dining hmm. so james uh what would you like to see in place of what has been proposed well we'd like to see them go back to the old thresholds uh we think it will help more people that are still suffering uh, um, continue to get supports. Um, we'd like to see them look at the uh, loan forgivenesses of the um, CEBA accounts. 
um, many of those are coming due, and um, people just don't have the cash to pay back the, those loans right now. So we'd like them to look at that. Um, and, you know, there's there's still lots of money that people had to put forward to pay for uh, pandemic safety expenditures. So we'd hope the government can look at that and help us uh, pay down some of that uh, cost that, that has accrued over the pandemic. Court, have you taken advantage of any of the loan programs, and, and uh, how are you fixed in terms of payback? Yeah, well, we were taking advantage of them all, and that's what allowed us to survive. And when the announcement came that the subsidy amounts were changing to the 40% decline, can you imagine, you know, where one restaurant that's 35% down doesn't qualify for anything any longer it becomes very difficult for us to try to, to survive throughout the winter and and that's a sentiment that's being shared across the the industry uh, we have a good round table of dis- discussions i have with other restaurateurs in the region and they're all feeling the same thing and from the you know the SIBA loans that we've received um which has been very helpful but you know that money is is coming due on at the end of uh, 2022 and we also have, you know, HST and, and remittances that we pay for, you know, employment tax that is substantial because there was no break on those amounts. And so despite even though it's getting the full subsidies or getting up to the 75% wage subsidy, we still paid the full remittances on those wages. So that number really never changed for us. Uh, and especially uh, organizations like ourselves that we, you know, we chose to keep a lot of people employed during the lockdown just to make sure that people were, you know, able to pay their bills and, and you know, child care and everything else that, that people need to do to, to make it through life. Uh, James, what kind of a response have you been getting from government, if any, uh, on these points that you're trying to make? Well, they have been listening. Uh, I think, from their point of view, they've they've done uh, more than they they sh- more than most, and uh, they've st- uh, come together and uh, kept us uh, whole through the through the um, pandemic. But uh, in their opinion, that has to end sometime. We think it's a little early to end, but they're they're still willing to listen. And you know, the bill was just introduced yesterday, and we'll continue to have conversations with the government. And uh, they definitely haven't shut the door on us, and uh, they're still willing to talk. So um, we'll take that as a as a good thing, and we'll uh, continue to talk in good faith, and hopefully, uh, hopefully we can get something done. And Court Hotel, what would you like to leave us with on this? I think the big thing is is what we're seeing in other provinces is really lacking in Ontario, where the provincial governments have stepped up to help increase some subsidies for for the restaurant sector and other hardest hit sectors. And but we're not really seeing that happen in Ontario. So I think there's a good opportunity for the provincial government to make a stand for these businesses. We're the lifeblood of so many communities. Uh, we bring people together. We employ, uh, you know, fourth largest employer in the, in the country. And if the provincial government can make a stand u- utilizing some of their federal monies that they received, uh, that would go a long way to help our industry just get through the next uh, few months through the winter. And then I think we're smooth sailing come come spring, summer. Okay, well, that's an interesting thought. Thank you so much, Court Hotel and James Rylett. We appreciate your time. Thank you very Thank much. You. And uh, that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So if you couldn't get through or if we've sparked a different thought, whatever it is you want to talk about, that is on our agenda tomorrow. So please give us a shout. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.